and welcome to Staff Picks, the podcast for movie nerds by movie nerds. As always, I'm Mario Lanza, and I am your host on our journey through the movies out there that just need a little more love in the world. And our movie today is a an especially interesting one for me to do, because this isn't the type of movie I normally do on Staff Picks. Uh, you'll hear a lot of you know horror movies, obscure horror movies. You'll hear a lot of jackass comedies from the 80s, stuff that's very light and just I think is fun to talk about. Uh, what we're delving into today is a movie that's a little different. It's more of a uh, conspiracy, <laughs> paranoia, um, not really a paranoia movie, but it's like a, a political black comedy. Very, very black comedy, very dry. It's one that I saw as a kid I didn't get a whole lot out of. And then I saw later in my life, and I'm like, well, that was really interesting. That's a cool movie. Let's talk about that. And the movie I am talking about is the 1997 black political comedy, Wag the Dog, which uh, <laughs> has a very interesting place in history in not only movies, of but also politics. And then you could, oh, there's so much to say about this movie and how it relates to politics and the news in general. I'm, I'm very excited to get into it. My guest today, uh, this is a guy who discovered me on Twitter yeah, we know each other through the Survivor community, and he reached out to me. He said, you know, there's a movie I'd love to talk about called Wag the Dog, and it's not a movie that I had really considered for staff picks. It's one, there's some episodes where I'm the expert on the movie. I've seen a movie billions of times, and there's other episodes where my guest is the expert on the movie. He's seen it more of the times, and I'm just kind of following along with his discussion, and that's really the case today. Uh, his name is Peter Haley. He's a uh, big movie fan. Again, big Wag the Dog fan has been proposing this one to me for like a year to talk about. And I'm very excited to have him on the show. Welcome to Staff Picks, Peter. Well, thanks a lot, Mario. I really appreciate you having me on to talk about this great film. Now, why? Right off the bat, why is this a great film? Why is this the one that you came up with and said, we need to talk about that? Well, you already said it right there. It's a black comedy. And that's one of my favorite things is satirical comedy. And this film, it take it pokes fun at politics, it pokes fun at the media, it pokes fun at advertising. But one of the things I love about it is it doesn't really take sides. It says that all sides in this crazy world of political advertisement and promotion are crazy. Yeah, it's see, I'm like the least political person ever. That's why I was kind of hesitant. I really researched this movie before we delve into it because this is not my specialty category. But I do agree with you. It really it doesn't take sides. It just it paints a very comical portrait of how politics and the media work. And again, it was a 90s movie. This is before social media and before stuff got even really ridiculous. And it's like it was very uh, I think the word is prescient where it kind of predicted what was going to happen. That's exactly the word I used for it. And actually, it's funny, I'm, when I, I listen to staff picks a lot, and I probably am one of the few people that is older than you. Oh, wow. I was born in 1967. And this film, to me, I call it, it's in my, my trilogy of political films, which I think are Primary Colors, The Candidate, and Wag the Dog. There's another film called The Contender with Jeff Bridges and Joan Allen that I love as well. But they're films that really look at the election process and have fun with it. Yeah, I was actually I actually just watched The Contender recently as kind of a research for staff picks. I'm glad you brought that up. The uh, the other movie that this one kind of reminds me of is Burn After Reading a little bit. The Coen Brothers one. Are you familiar with that one? 
I love the Coen Brothers, but I've actually, if I've seen it, I saw it once and I didn't think it was that great. So I'm not saying it's bad. It just, it isn't in my radar. Yeah, that's the one. This one really reminds me of just, you know, political, cynical. Everyone's an idiot. It's how easy it is to fool the public. Just stuff like that. Um, although before we delve into it, I know you have a, a background on movies. You're a big movie fan. Kind of give us your history here. Why are you a movie expert? Like, how did you get into movies in general? What's your what's your backstory here? Well, again, showing my age, I saw Star Wars in the summer of 77 when I was nine years old. And that made me a film fan. That year I saw, or within the last next couple of years, I saw Star Wars 21 times in the movie theater, which back then was the only place you could see a movie. But luckily we had one and $2 theaters in my neighborhood, so I could just go back and they theaters would show it again and again and again. So that be, that made me kind of an obsessive movie fan. I kind of obsess over a lot of things. And eventually I got a little smarter and started seeing what I would think are smarter films. And in my 20s and 30s, I would go and see 30 theatrical releases every year. Wow. My friend Keith and I would go and see films together and try to pick the really smart ones, the really funny ones. And we still love broad comedies and you know, pop films, but we'd trade, take turns trading who would pick the film. And that led to us seeing some great films. Okay. Well, off the top of your head, what's one really smart comedy over the years that you really enjoyed? I'm just curious which one jumped out at you. <sighs> Put me on the spot. I would have said wag the dog. <laughs> oh, oh, sure. Take the easy answer. No, but I, I would say that a great, an, another one, the Candidate is a really excellent one. That's one of the ones I mentioned, and it's older. It's from the 70s with Robert Redford running for a congressman position in California, and it's an excellent film, and it just really shows how one small candidate can rise up and become elected. And the I don't want to spoil it for anyone, but the final line of the film is one of my favorite lines in any film. All right. Um, now, you said Star Wars. You've seen Star Wars 21 times in the theater. Is that correct? Did I hear that right? Yes. That is that the most times you've ever seen a movie in the theater? Well, I'll, I tied, that ties the times that I've seen the Rocky Horror Picture Show. <laughs> that was back when I was younger, and I used to go to the Midnight Theater in Harvard Square in Boston. I'm in, outside of Boston, and uh, I would see that. I would go like every week to see that. I didn't dress up. I wanted to, but I never did. Wait, so the Harvard crowd was doing Rocky Horror? That doesn't seem like the right uh, audience base for that. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, it wasn't it wasn't really the Harvard crowd, but there was a theater in Harvard Square called Harvard Square Theater, and showed some really excellent films. I saw Pulp Fiction there. I saw Goodwill Hunting there. But they showed they showed that was a midnight movie. Rocky Horror was a midnight movie, so people would go there and there's college kids everywhere in boston so it was there's lines of people all dressed up as the characters and just go in and and granted i i was kind of drunk most of the time i saw it but um i that was a long time so these kids coming in from out of town to go to the harvard theater like in goodwill hunting basically it's all the southeast were coming up to watch it and the Southies, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, I, I just want to point out that you've seen Star Wars 21 times in the theater. That smashes my record of seven times that I saw Dumb and Dumber in the theater. I'm very proud to say. 1994. Congratulations. <laughs> I've never seen that movie. <laughs> well, I've seen it many times. Someday, maybe, we'll do it on Staff Picks. It would not be 
a intelligent, an intelligent comedy like Wag the Dog. That's right. To give a little overview of this picture, there's some interesting things about it. And again, it came out in 1997, and it basically makes fun of how easy it is to manipulate people and voters through the media. And I saw it when I was 23. That's how old I was in 1997. And I didn't really get a whole lot out of it. It was kind of a mature movie for me. Again, I'm seeing Dumb and Dumber seven times in the theater. So this is not really in my in my wheelhouse. But I did take an important lesson from this movie. And it's something that I think you were going to bring up as well in this podcast. Is just how bullshit the media is when it comes to covering politics and stuff like that. And how easy it is to, like, dupe everyone. And that's that's the message that I got as a kid. I'm like... Wow, politics is all just BS, isn't it? And that's I think that's where you're going to go with this podcast. That's why you wanted, you wanted to bring it up. But I'm guessing you and I are going to approach this from a little different uh, angle here. Well, absolutely. I just think the best the best satirical comedies poke fun at an institution you know and kind of pull back the curtain and allow you to see how things really happen. And this film does a great job of showing all different sides of that, as I was saying before. Not just the media, but also the political machines that drive the story and then the media who pick up the story and how the public reacts to that story. Mm -hmm. And this was something that was very much in the news in the 90s and then obviously even more so in the news now in the you know 2019. But we would be remiss if we did not point out how how close this was to what really happened about it about a couple months after the movie. Do you want to explain to people who maybe are a little young, how this movie kind of predicted what happened in real life? Well, I, yeah, I think it's fascinating when I, when I think about the film, I, I think back and say, Oh, well, it, it was inspired by the Monica Lewinsky scandal, but actually this film was released in December of 97 and the Clinton scandal didn't break until January of 98. So it was, and it was based on a book that was written even earlier so it predicted the Monica Lewinsky scandal, which I don't want to spend too much time talking about because it just is lascivious. But that is kind of what the idea was. And the interesting thing was that in August of 98, so this, the Clinton scandal broke in January of 98. In August of 98, the United States bombed what they said was a bomb-making factory of Al Qaeda in the Sudan, it turned out that allegedly it was an aspirin factory. But when it came out, I remember the media saying, well, it's a wag the dog scenario. So the, the film was influencing the media that it was poking fun at. <laughs> yeah, I'll give a little more details. Again, I don't want to get too much into the Lewinsky thing, but we do have a lot of younger listeners who won't even know all this history. Is that the premise of this movie is that the president is involved in a sex scandal and that is very, it's a bad thing. It'll bring down anyone in politics. So he hires a bunch of spin doctors to cr come up with a fake war because a war will always be more interesting than a sex scandal. So they concoct this entire fake war in the media that doesn't even exist, but everyone thinks it does. And that basically gets the president reelected because it distracts from his sex scandal. And what uh, Peter was saying is that literally is what happened about a month after this movie came out is that Clinton was in a sex scandal with um, a woman named Monica Lewinsky. And all of a sudden he started bombing people or bombing uh, the, the aspirin factories in Iran and or Iraq and stuff. And uh, yeah, it was a big story. And yeah, he, it, literally the movie played out in real life exactly the way it happened in the movie. And so it's kind of a notorious uh, 
instance. And then what's interesting is that this movie kind of got forgotten, though, after that. Like, you don't hear about Wag the Dog much anymore, although I'm sure you'd be the first person to point out the lessons learned from Wag the Dog apply even more so today with how easy it is to manipulate people through social media, especially. Absolutely. But one of the things that that I think that it's it's interesting that it is kind of forgotten or not looked back on with any awe. But if you look at the cast, it's astonishing. You have Robert De Niro, Dustin Hoffman, Anne Hash, Dennis Leary, uh, Willie Nelson, who was fantastic in the film. And there's just so many other people that are in this film that just pop up all over the place. If you hired a cast like this, People would think it was this blockbuster film, yet it's this small little film. The writer of the film is David Mamet, who is legendary in Hollywood as a writer and a script doctor and a director. So the all-star cast, the people that came together, and directed by Barry Levinson, who did Rain Man, among so many other great films. It's amazing that you're right. It is a little bit forgotten. Yeah, it's, I was noticing when I watched it, like, even Kirsten Dunst pops up in there, and this is before she became famous. Like, just so many little people. You got Craig T. Nelson in there, Woody Harrelson. Yeah, yeah it's just yeah. it's really fun. And again, I don't remember this movie being a big hit. Like, I know it was nominated for a couple of Oscars. I think Dustin Hoffman was nominated. But again, I don't remember it being the biggest thing ever. And, like, if the Lewinsky thing wouldn't have happened right after it, I'm not sure it would have really been remembered at all. It's one of those that just kind of slipped into the cracks. And like you said, it has such a cool cast. But again, it's like this wasn't one of the bigger movies of the year, right? Oh, absolutely not. And for many years, I had heard that the actors worked for scale for this, meaning they took low pay to, to allow the movie to not have a huge bloated budget. But I did some research, and I couldn't find that to be true, but it sounds like a good story. Okay, I think we we should walk people through this movie. And what's what's funny is when I, when I first started sitting down to take notes, I'm like, oh, this is a really complicated, convoluted movie. There's so many notes I'll have to take. But there's really only about three parts to the movie. It's actually deceptively simple when you go through it. Yeah. All right, so let's uh, let's lay out the premise here. Basically... The premise of this movie is there's a president, and uh, he's unnamed, and if I recall, they never actually show the president in the movie, right? He's always seen, like, in the shadows or from behind. We never actually know who he is. He's a MacGuffin. Yes, he's a MacGuffin, and he has done the unthinkable. He uh, had a bunch of Girl Scouts into the Oval Office. They're called the Firefly Girls, and he made inappropriate advances toward a Firefly Girl. And this was not good, especially because he is up for re-election in 11 days. And all of a sudden, this is going to become the biggest scandal ever. And, oh boy, it's time to call in the spin doctor. And this is where we meet Robert De Niro. Yeah, Connie Breen. And the one of the great, there's so many running gags or lines in the film. And one of them is people always say to him, what exactly do you do for the president? He never answers the question. Because this is what he does. He doesn't want anyone to know what he does. <laughs> yeah, although there's a great running joke throughout this movie, and I have to lay it out right at the start. The movie starts where, again, this president, he's probably middling in popularity, and he's running for re-election, and he's got this really lame political ad that's airing on TV, and it's basically just old people talking about how, you know, if you raise horses, you never change horses in midstream. 
And they're like, always stick to a winner, never change a winner if he's winning. Keep America working. And this is exactly how, you know, political ads would have been in the 90s. And that's the whole running joke throughout this movie is that this lame political ad is the only thing he's going on, got going for him while he's got a massive sex scandal working against him. And this will have a fun payoff later in the movie. I, I love that. I love the reaction later when Dennis Leary says, I'm insulted that I just watched that. It's so stupid. And yeah, it's just so many little digs at politics and the way political ads work and media works. Although there's one line, Peter, that really jumped out in this movie. And it's something Anne Heche says about 80% of the way through the movie. Do you know which line I'm talking about? I don't. She is talking about in, in 1997, she is lamenting the fact that uh, politics is all driven by entertainment and commercials and stuff. And people are so stupid. And she says, Damn it, television has ruined the Electoral College. <laughs> Which is really funny to think about in 2019 when we have social media and all this stuff that were way beyond just television influencing the election. So that's the line that really jumps out, that even in the 90s, they were already complaining that television was making it too silly. <laughs> You're right. All right, so what happens here? We bring in De Niro. Why don't you kind of walk people through his opening salvo here at the start of the movie when he realizes he has to rescue yet another president from a sex scandal. Yeah, he looks at the he looks at what the story is and he says he rolls his eyes and they're in they're in like a war room. You never see it, but he's in with some staffers. One of them is John Michael Higgins, who's been in a million films, and they're talking about how they have to do it. And he just says, We just have to distract them. And that's really kind of the gist of the entire what he's going to do. We need to distract the public from this story onto something else. And Anne H says to him, well, what would do that? He says, I'm working on it. <laughs> yeah. The entire movie is just people making stuff up off the top of their head, just trying to figure out how to distract America from this sex scandal. Although I kind of forgot that Anne Hayes was in this. Uh, I don't know if people who are younger than us will remember the infamy of Anne Hayes and she was like a big deal for a while. Then she just kind of disappeared. Like, do you remember how, what a big deal she was? She was, she was pretty big and she was in some good movies that, that, Film with Harrison Ford, I didn't think that 10 days, 10 nights or something like that. I didn't think that was that bad of a film. But yeah, she kind of came and had a flash in the pan. And then she was famously in a relationship with Ellen DeGeneres. And then I don't know what happened to her. If she's listening to this, I'm, I, I'm so sorry. And Yeah, she was, uh, for people, a little history lesson for people who didn't grow up in the 90s, that Ellen DeGeneres came out of the closet. She was the first gay actress in Hollywood, and it was a... You'd think it would have been a very positive thing, but she was not received very well at the time. Like, that's the thing. She was almost run out of Hollywood. It was really kind of a notoriety thing. But Anne Heche was Ellen's girlfriend at the time, and it was a big deal. They were the first prominent lesbian couple in Hollywood. And eventually there was, like, a, a big issue where Anne Heche, like, switched teams on her and ended up going out with a guy, and it became a big thing like the all the the uh, comedians in the news would make fun of it and ellen degeneres even made fun of it when she hosted snl for the first time she's like uh i forget she made took some dig at yeah well, I, I like to uh date people who are going to stay on my team so it was, it was kind of a thing and then ann hayes was she was a big actress at the time and then she kind of disappeared and i know she's still working but she's not nearly at the uh name recognition level that she would have been in 1997 all right, so so we have the scandal here, and De Niro is basically coming up with a plan. He's thinking on his feet. What are we gonna do? We gotta distract people. We gotta we gotta think, get him to talk about something else. And he's basically right off the bat already talking about war. War will always distract the public. How are we gonna do that? And uh, this is where he comes up with the B three bomber, right? Yeah, he says 
why is the president in China? And they say the staffers say something about a, you know, trade talks or something like that. And he says, he says, well, it's certainly not about uh, deployment of the B-3 bomber. And they say, there is no B-3 bomber. He says, I know that there is no B-3 bomber. It, he's trying to teach them, this is how you distract. This is how you change the narrative. Yeah, you just come up with a war term or a plane or anything and just deny it. Anytime there's a press conference, just say, this is not about the B-3 bomber. And that's all that the public wants to talk about. Then why? why? What is the B-3 bomber? There is no B-3 bomber. So right off the bat, they're already going into spin control and just talking about how dull the public is. Although I have to say I appreciate the kind of the subtle little jokes in this movie that I kind of forgotten that um, the the uh, president's political opponent, the guy running against him for re-election, Craig T. Nelson, Senator Neal, he already has an attack ad like the day after the president's sex scandal breaks that Senator Neal has a commercial out there that said that uh, plays that old French song, Thank Heavens for Little Girls. Just saying, do we really want the president around our children? So I, I kind of forgot how nasty that that part was. And it's funny because I, when I rewatched it, you know, I've seen it probably 25 times. But when I was rewatching it, planning for this, there's a scene when Anne Haitian De Niro walking through the halls of the White House. And there's a picture on a podium and it's the picture of the president with the firefly girl. <laughs> it's strange. I was like, how? How did I not ever see that before? This great little Easter eggs. <laughs> That's great. That's fantastic. <laughs> I didn't even notice that. I'm going to go look for that. All right. So, yeah. So the concept here is De Niro has a phrase, which is change the story, change the lead. He's like, it's not a new concept. And he basically points out that almost every war in American history was basically done this way through propaganda and fake pictures. And he keeps bringing up this one example of like the Gulf War in Iraq how they had a famous shot of a bomb going down a chimney and blowing up a building. And he's like, that was all done in a sound studio. Like that, the entire public galvanized around the war because of that one image. And like, I, I don't know if that's based on truth, but I don't know if it's not based on truth either. And that he's like, that's the thing. You don't know. Anything could happen when it's a war. I, that is true. And I, I love his lines are so great. And they're so clearly written by David Mamet. And one of my favorite lines in the entire movie, someone says, is that true? And he says, I read the first draft of the Warren report that says that Kennedy was killed by a drunk driver. <laughs> it's it's just such a it's so out there and makes no sense yet. He's like, who's to say it isn't true? Yeah. There's so many dialogues where people will say, is that true? He says, who's to say <laughs> the answer for the film answers and says, these are the people that say these are the people that are making up the stories that for the public to consume. Yeah, there's a running line throughout this movie where someone says, is this war real? Is there an actual war? And De Niro will always say, I saw it on TV, so it must be true. And that's kind of the underlying cynicism of this movie. I mean, who's to say it's not true? If you see it on TV, that's real enough for most people. So I think it did happen. So, And that, that will be the, the underlying conceit throughout the next 90 minutes. Absolutely. All right, yeah. So De Niro's plan is he, we're going to have a war. We're going to start a war with somebody. And all the staffers are, are aghast. They're like, a war? We're going to have a war? And De Niro clarifies, no, we're not going to have a war. We're going to have an appearance of a war. <laughs> That'll lead to some of the best jokes in the movie here. And, uh, and But they don't even know with who. They're like, who? Who are we fighting? And De Niro's like, I'm working on it. Let me think of this. I'm working on it. He says that a lot. And Peter, which country, which dread country do they pick to go, out, go to war with? 
Albania. <laughs> now, why? Why would you go to war with Albania, Peter? Well, what have they ever done for us? What have they ever done for us? Yes. Nobody, know, nobody knows anything about them. That's the best thing about it. Yeah, that's the answer. Why Albania? And De Niro's like, why not Albania? Like, do you know anything about them? Maybe they've attacked us. Nobody knows this. And he's like, this is why we need to mobilize the B-3 bomber. And all the staffers are like, what B-3 bomber? He's like, exactly. There is no B-3 bomber. Just strike it from your minds. Yeah. And so, yeah, this is a... This is where it goes. The sex scandal breaks, and it's all over the news, and the president's opponents start demanding he step down, and they concoct this whole thing, De Niro and Anne Heche, that the president will pretend he's sick. We're going to say he's sick in China, and it has nothing to do with the B-3 bomber. Just don't ask about the B-3 bomber. And within two days, we have to start an appearance of a war. And this is where we introduce the probably the best character in this movie, Dustin Hoffman, as Hollywood producer Stanley Moss. The brilliance of Stanley Moss is his name is spelled M-O-T-S-S. Why is there a T in his name? It's just, it's such a Hollywood thing. I love his character so much. And I don't know if you're familiar with the film, The Kid Stays in the Picture. Yeah, I don't know that one at all. Oh, that's, it's a documentary about the producer, Robert Evans. And I have heard, and you can, if you watch that now, that Stanley Motts is based on Robert Evans. Evans was famous in that film. He narrates the film, and the film is mostly just told in, told in pictures. Mm -hmm. But he, he talks about his life as a producer. He produced The Godfather. He did so many great films in the new Hollywood, and he reversed to himself in the first person as Evans and <laughs> constantly talks. It's, a, it's an excellent documentary. But clearly Stanley Moss is Robert Evans. Often has denied it, but it, he can't. It's absolutely true. I love that character so much. He's so self-absorbed and just all he wants is credit. And there's a lot of little insider Hollywood talk in this movie where they start referencing other movies and other, you know, production problems he's run into. And again, when I'm 23, I don't really care about that stuff. But as I get older and I watch that now, I'm like, man, there's a lot of fun dialogue in this movie. And right off the bat, they go to this Hollywood producer because De Niro knows this is the only guy who can put on a war. I mean, war is entertainment. The news is entertainment. Let's hire an entertainment guy to put on the appearance of a war. And right off the bat, Moss doesn't, the, the producer doesn't uh, believe them. He's like, no, this is, there's, there's no way. We're not going to be able to pull this off. There's no way. And he, he's trying to figure out how close De Niro is, who he works for. Again, we don't know what De Niro does other than he's like the, the plumber. He fixes stuff for the president. And this is where we get the uh, the press conference scene, right, where they, they actually call someone to get to get Higgins to say something on the air to prove that they're in with the president. Yeah, and it's funny because they use a the line. They say, I know I know our thoughts and prayers are with the president. Like, and we hear thoughts and prayers so much now. To hear that used, you know, he's talking to the press, and then somebody mentions the B-3 bomber, and Gennaro's like, all right, now they get it. Now they're picking it up. Now they're getting it. And you know that that was whispered into somebody's ear. Uh -huh. And that's why that guy asked that question. But I love when Dustin Hoffman says to him, how close are you to this? He says, what do you want the kid to say? He says, he says the line. And then Higgins says the exact same line. And Dustin, being the producer, he says, he didn't really sell it. He didn't really sell it enough. <laughs> he's, I, he's so good. <laughs> Yeah, I believe Dustin Hoffman was nominated for an Oscar for this, right? I think I said that earlier. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, he's the standout here, and he's just over the top. And right off the bat, he kind of sees the possibilities that you know war is entertainment. And he, what's his quote here? He's like, "War is show business. That's why we're here." And he's already his mind is spinning. He's like, "We need a slogan. We need a hero. We need a song. We need an image that people can rally behind. You know, we need a motto." And he's already thinking of merchandising rights and everything. <laughs> Again, it's it's really like I said, it's really hard to take politics and press conferences and the news cycle seriously the more you watch this movie would you agree with that absolutely and you know what my my friend and i saw, saw this movie many times and we walk around and say someone says something and we'll say we'll just do it for the story to tell and that's the, the couple of key things at the beginning of the film that stanley moss says he says he want he keeps wanting credit he says I never won the I never won an Oscar, and Daenerys says, "But you produced the Oscar." He said, "You're damn right, I did." He says, "I want the credit," and why does he do something? Ah, I just do it for the story to tell, <laughs> yeah. and that becomes that becomes important at the end of the film. But another thing that he you mentioned this about knowing other films, he's constantly saying, "This this is nothing, this is nothing." And he make, pulls out some reference to an old film. They'll say, this is nothing. Try shooting the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Three of the horsemen died before principal shooting. <laughs> yeah. And that's the kind of stuff that really, if you're a younger you know, viewer, you probably won't get much out of that. But it's really, it's really amazing how unflappable this guy is, this producer. Nothing can throw him. And as we'll go, as we'll go through the movie, he'll have things go wrong, left and right and left and right. Nothing throws him. And he even says at one point, like, a producer is a samurai. You train your entire life for that one moment when you have to put your skills to the test and save someone's life. That's what I'm doing today. This is my samurai moment. That's great, yeah. Yeah, so they're they're trying to figure out why we'll be at war with Albania, and they're racking their brains. And this is where Dustin Hoffman calls in like he's got a brain trust of all his all his Hollywood people. Like Dennis Leary shows up, and uh, who else shows up? Andrea Martin from SCTV shows up in there. Who else is that? It? Or Willie Nelson? Willie Nelson. Yeah, Willie Nelson. They they all have names like Dennis Leary is Fad King, and Liz Butsky. She's she doesn't have a name. That's Andrea Martin, and. Uh, Johnny is the uh, Willie Nelson, and I love he gets him on the phone and he says he's he's driving around with a pickup truck and a shotgun, and he does that cackling laugh. All that stuff is just he has this team, and later on in the film he says this is producing. Put me in a room with talent, and we come up with gems. <laughs> Now, the, there's a line here that I had forgotten about where, where Dustin Hoffman says, this isn't a war, it's a pageant. We're doing a pageant. Like, we're coming up with the, the choreography and the music and everything. It's just going to be beautiful. And the first thing they need to do for their pageant is we need to find out why we're at war with Albania. And Dustin Hoffman comes up with it, of course. And this is funny because this is actually the rationale we're going to hear during the Gulf War from Bush. And you'll hear this a lot in the 2000s where Hoffman says, fuck freedom they want to destroy our way of life that's that's why they hate us because we have freedom and so we're going to fight them just because they don't like who we are which is very similar to stuff we were hearing in the 2000s after this movie but it's also one other thing he says he has this revelation he says we just found out they have the bomb yes nuclear terrorism that's the thing and and then he says but wait a minute no that doesn't make sense because they need rockets and they need all that wait no suitcase bomb they were like, that's really smart. He says, says this is producing. <laughs> yeah. 
So that's the premise of the war they're concocting, that the Albanians have the bomb, they hate our freedom, they're going to come attack us with a nuclear bomb, and they're going to smuggle it through Canada because we need a border to protect. And again, this is this is every premise of a war that's happened since maybe you know 1997 so it's kind of amusing i mean i guess depending on how amusing you think politics is i think it's amusing but yeah it's a it the and so they get the dream team together to start dreaming up how we're going to convince the public that we need to protect the canadian border from the albanians and this is where they they need bring in there willie nelson the songwriter and they need they 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 tell him to to come up with a song like the like the tie the yellow ribbon thing <laughs> one of the best parts about that and i think that's so smart is Anne Hayes is talking about things occurring naturally. They talk about the yellow ribbons from, was it the yellow ribbons from the hostages, I think. She says, so that was a natu- naturally occurring phenomenon. He, he looks at her like, he doesn't even say anything. He just kind of cocks his eye and she says, I mean, that was a put-up job? Meaning that somebody invented that to sell yellow ribbons. And probably the fad king. Who is it? Who's the comedian I'm trying to think of? There's someone, it was a uh, Nick DiPaolo. He was once talking about the red ribbons, the ones in support of uh, raising awareness of AIDS or breast cancer or something in the 90s. And he had a great quote. He said, the only person those red ribbons are helping is the guy who owns the red ribbon factory, <laughs> which that's a line I always remember when I think of this stuff. Yeah, and then uh, Dennis Leary in this, the the fab, the fad king, is coming up with merchandise that they can get to give to the public to support the war against Albania. And he comes up with armbands. And he's like, armbands is good. We can get people to buy armbands green. And they spend a whole debate on what the color of the armband should be. And they like Hunter Green because it's strong, not Kelly Green. We need strong armbands to represent America. And you know what's interesting? I, I, don't, I heard you I just recently was listening to um, your Galaxy Quest staff picks and you were talking about Star Trek nerds and whatever. I'll just throw this out there for any Star Trek nerds that are listening. Grace, who is Stanley's uh, assistant is played by this actress, Susie Plaxon, who, if you're a Star Trek, the next generation nerd, you'll know she played Kalar Worf's girlfriend and mother to his son, Alexander on next generation. You can edit that out if you want to, but that's, that's, <laughs> that's the, the hard hitting trivia I expect on staff picks. Thank you. So, yeah, they're coming up with all the plans and all the details, and this is with the, probably the most memorable part of this movie that people remember is the little orphan girl that Dustin Hoffman comes up. We need an icon, something that will remind people of this war, the horrible atrocities going on in Albania. And they come up with this idea, and I'll let you walk people through this because this is such a long section of the movie, the, the young orphan girl in the rubble with a the kitten. They start deciding they need someone who's fleeing from the nuclear terrorists in Albania and they start going through headshots of people and the Dustin Hoffman at one point says, no, that one, she looks too Texas. And they come up with, they come up with this, what they're going to do. And then the next thing you know, they're on set filming what you'd think would be a movie or a commercial, but they're filming news footage of a woman, a girl, a young girl running for her life. And Stanley wants her to be holding a kitten and there's a long whole discussion about what kind of kitten it's going to be. And he says, I want it to be a calico kitten. And I forget the comedian's name. He was in, um, there's something about Mary, but he's the dog, the pet wrangler. Oh, and he's yeah, Harlan Williams. Harlan Williams, yes. And he's pushing a Lhasa Apso. And Dustin Huffman just saying, like, 
this guy is trying to sell me on the Lhasa Slasso, and I just want a calico kitten. So then they have Kirsten Dunst is the person they hire, and she comes in and she says, and it's this is another important part of the film. She says to Robert De Niro, now when this is over, can I put this on my resume? Because she's an actress. Mm -hmm. And he says, no, you can't put this on your resume. She says, what is it, a guild thing? He says, you can never tell anyone that you ever did this. She says, why? He says, because they could come to your house and kill you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think people forget this movie has a very dark ending. <laughs> Absolutely. And another great thing about when they're filming this, they so now they you really get to see behind the curtain of producing this scene, which would be like producing a movie, and he's trying to come up with options. And so they don't have a cat. He says, you know what? Just we'll, we'll punch it in digitally later. They have her run holding a bag of Doritos or Tostitos or something. And she's running along and she's like, these are chips. These are chips. And he says, he says, that, that's all right. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to punch it in later. She's going, you're going to punch a kitten. He said, no, no, no. We want more options. She's like options for what? For kittens. And then they, they sit and they, they create smoke and they create flames and they make a bridge. And then Anne Hage comes along and says, has the president on the phone and says, the president would like a white kitten. And I love Dustin Hoffman's reaction. He turns to the guy next to him and he says, I hate when they meddle. <laughs> yeah. I love that line. Because I, I feel that way sometimes when I'm doing something and I know what I'm doing and then some boss or senior person will come along and tell me how to do it. I'll say, I always say to myself, I hate when they meddle. Yeah, the background dialogue in this scene in particular, I think this is the funniest scene in the movie because they, they're throwing together this news footage and they're just frantic and they're throwing to their details. And again, they're wrangling over whether she should be holding Tostitos or a cat or a dog. And then you have Willie Nelson wandering around saying, Albania is hard to rhyme. Can we switch it to Italy? <laughs> so they're, they're trying to, other people are trying to change the country we're going to war with. And like at one point it's brought up that Jim Belushi is Albanian. So maybe they can get him involved somehow. And I love when they're, when they're, uh, <laughs> this is a horrible line, but just when they're, they're getting Kristen, Kirsten Dunst ready for her big moment where she's going to flee from the terrorists and they're putting makeup on her. And someone says, stop the makeup. She's been raped by terrorists. Yeah, yeah. And then they're trying to think all the all the footage, all the blue screen stuff to put around her, like a village and flames. And at one point, the director says, give me the ooh-ah sound, the Anne Frank sirens, which is just another little quip that I kind of forgot was in this movie, the the, the like the uh, French police sirens, what they would be. <laughs> and, yeah, it's just crazy. And they have this whole thing where they digitally replace Kirsten Dunst with the Tostitos with a cat. And it's just, it's crazy. And then within four hours, they've created this fake newsreel footage and released it to the media and naturally the public completely buys it because that's what would happen in real life they would absolutely buy it you know it's interesting what they one of the things they they put in there is i think it's called the wilhelm scream <laughs> you hear this scream and it's a very famous scream it's used it's a stock sound scream and you've heard it in a million films i think it's in star wars actually and uh, which i saw 21 times and it's um it's it's just that kind of thing, like just plug in the stock footage that we've you've heard in a million films. And I will tell you that's interesting about what you were saying about uh, the country changing the country. 
Den, the Fad King, Dennis Larry says, can, says, can we change it to Italy because I have a great back end there and we can make do the boot, give him the boot or some kind of a shoe. And that comes up later in the film. So I love the fact. And then Willie Nelson is strumming his guitar and he says, Albania, Albania. And Dustin Hoffman says, that rhymes. <laughs> if, if you're a cynical bastard, this movie is just so much fun of just the way they mock the news and perception of war. It's just so awesome. And again, I really feel bad. I didn't appreciate that much when I was younger. But yeah, so the the footage of Kirsten Dunst fleeing the terrorism the terrorists is leaked to the news, and all of a sudden the sex scandal goes off the front pages, and we see a little like a little countdown. Okay, ten days till the election. The president's doing okay, and this is there's some other stuff in here where they show uh, like the president when he comes home, they have a little Albanian girl meet him at the airport and give him like the basket from the first harvest, which just cracks me up because it's so over the top. And then this is where the song comes in, right? Willie Nelson finally finishes his song, Guard the American Borders, Guard the American Dream. I'll tell you that that part of it for me, you talk about being a cynical bastard. I fit that model, and that stuff, that song is so. It's you know he's got a, they're recording it with a 15 people singing, and the one guy with the deep voice singing along, and kind of the Springsteen moment from We Are the World. And I've always been cynical about those kind of songs that are kind of jingoistic songs that come out. I mean, even Paul McCartney what did one after 9/11. It was like. Really, this is the worst song he's ever written, but it's usually popular because it's about this tragedy. And that this makes me even more cynical about songs like that. Oh, yeah. And this was like before that was actually happening all the time in real life. Like this movie kind of predicted that the the country and Western ballad in support of America that everyone rallies behind. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Again, do not forget this. The Red Ribbons only help the owner of the Red Ribbon Factory. And I think, sorry, I just, I think if you saw this now, you'd probably think it was made after all that stuff. Like a lot of that stuff, a lot of the stuff that's in this, you think, oh yeah, well they do that all the time. So why is this funny? I'm like, because it, it was before that ever happened, before that stuff was ubiquitous. I mean, can you imagine how easy it would be to manipulate people with Twitter and social media now? Like in the 90s, they actually kind of had to work at it. It would be yeah. so easy now. That's why. That's just why people ask why I'm not political. It's because I can't take it seriously. Like I can't take news and politics and outrage culture seriously with all this easy to manipulate social media. It's way too easy. So I just I assume everything is bullshit. And that's how I get through the get get through life. That's a good way to go. <laughs> yeah. So so okay, we're gonna have a plot twist here. That uh, the producers and De Niro they have managed to head off the sex scandal. They've created this fake war. Everyone's happy. There's only ten days till election. Although then they get busted by the CIA. Apparently the CIA has been wiretapping them, and they catch on that these people are faking a war. And this is where a CIA agent pulls them over and says, "Okay, the gig is up. You can't do this anymore." Here we go. Yet another awesome actor that you kind of forget is in this movie. William H. Macy pops up. Uh, he have one of, here's one of my favorite lines in the movie. 
and don't even really understand it, but he sits down and he says, there are two things I know to be true. There's no difference between good flan and bad flan, and there is no war. <laughs> I've never had flan, but I just love that line. And you're going to want that true coat. They put that on at the factory. We got no say over that. I love him. He's so great. <laughs> so basically the CIA calls them out and says, we know you're faking this war. And they have this long discussion and De Niro and William H. Macy basically agree to disagree. Like, okay, what is perception? Is this really happening? Is this not happening? And for the good of the country, they agree that nobody's going to tell the public, but then the CIA is going to go right to the opponent, Craig T. Nelson, the opponent of the president. And all of a sudden, here's the plot twist where the CIA tells the other guy what's going on. And Craig T. Nelson goes on the air and says, yes, the war in Albania was horrible, but it's over now. The war has ended. We're back to the scandal. And how about the sex scandal? And all of a sudden, De Niro and Hayes and, and Dustin Hoffman are like, oh, crap. We didn't think what would happen if the war ended early. I love that Dustin Hoffman says, he can't end our war. And De Niro says to him, he just did. I saw it on TV. <laughs> yeah. It's true. And that's just, again, that running thing. If you see it on TV, it must be true. Yeah. And the, the great quote here where Dustin Hoffman starts ranting, the war's not over until I say it's over. This is my picture. It's not the CIA's picture. And he, like, takes it all personally. Absolutely. And now he's going to double down. Dustin Hoffman is like, this was just act one. All, all we'd have to do is do an act two now. We need to think of something else because now, again, this public is getting back into the sex scandal. And uh, what, what is it? The uh, Dennis Leary suggests what, what they're all coming up for brainstorming ideas for what the act two can be. Well, I think Dustin Hoffman says, or one of them just says, we forgot to have a hero. Yes. We had a war and we didn't have a hero. <laughs> and the, the idea is they got to find, and you're right, Dennis Leary does a lot of this. He says, you remember those guys in World War II, that Japanese, they didn't they didn't believe that the war was over, and they still wanted to fight, so we got a guy, and he's stuck behind enemy lines, and he doesn't know the war's over, and that's how they find, they reach out to the Pentagon, they want special programs, they want somebody named Schumann, that's what, this is where the shoe comes in, it's like Schuster, Schumann, something like that, and they find... Willie Schumann, uh, Woody Harrelson. Yeah, this this to me is fantastic. I love how cynical this part of the movie is. Like the little orphan girl is one thing, but this is where we reach a new level. Where yeah, they we there's let's talk about this guy who's left behind in Albania. The war may be over, but he doesn't know, and he's trapped behind enemy lines. And they even say he was discarded like an old shoe. And so yeah, yeah. Dustin Hoffman's brains is spinning. He's like discarded like an old shoe we can come up with a song old shoe shoeman schubert so yeah they literally go and look for anybody in the military anybody in the u.s services who has the name shoe somewhere in there that they can use as their as their mascot yeah oh and on top of that a song we need a new song so poor willie nelson has already written the song about guarding the borders and now he just wants to go and get drunk and uh, Dustin Hoffman's like, we need a new song about a shoe, a shiny shoe. It needs to be a song of loss and redemption. And Willie's like, but I just wanted to go drink. And he's like, write the song first, then you can go drink. New shoe, new shoe, old shoe. Yeah, so what do they come up with? Like a, It's a blues song, an old blues song from the 1930s here. Yeah, good old shoe. Good old shoe. Good old shoe. Stand up. Proud, the way he taught you to, and you might even get... 
and I love that when they're they're kind of he, he, there's a guy in the studio comes in and he says, "What are you trying to write a song?" He's like, "Yeah, I got to write a song about a shoe." And so they just start kind of ad libbing and making up a song, and they're listening. and And De Niro says, "So well, maybe we can make it sound kind of scratchy and old." And Hoffman's like, "I see where you're going with this. Yeah, we could definitely do that." And then eventually they take it, they make a recording of it, they put it onto a like a 78 disc. De Niro gives it to one of the staffers and says, put this in the Library of Congress under folk music. And so that then later on there's a, a radio DJ says, now I just found, someone just brought this to my attention, this old song from the 40s that I think fits along, and they start playing the song. It's genius. That's that's the joke that really made me laugh the hardest in this movie when they literally create an old record, they scratch it up to make it sound like it was a blues song from the 30s from like the Mississippi Delta and they, they file it in the Library of Congress and they basically put a tip to a reporter. Oh, there was this old song, like old shoe. It's on the tip of my tongue. Maybe you can find it. And yeah, they literally check it into the Library of Congress so it exists in the public record, which I love. And then and they still haven't, they still to this point have not found Sergeant Schumann. They know there's one out there and they're trying to find the right one and they get the song out there and they're trying to rally the public behind this fallen war hero. And this is where the uh, the speech that De Niro writes this speech about the, he wants the president to give about this fallen hero, Willie Schumann, and the president will not read it. The president box, he says it's corny and Dustin Hoffman is going to flip his lid again. You know, the funny thing is there's a scene when um, they're still trying to come up with all this stuff and De Niro's like half asleep and somebody says to him, what time is it? And he says, it's 3.03. And Dustin Roberts says, yeah, that's it, that's it. They create a unit in the army, the, the, the men of the fighting men of the 3.03, because it was 3.03 a.m. when he asked that question. And it, it's just that's the kind of stuff. And then they're going to, he wants to have have him do the 303 speech and yeah he goes he says get me get me 10 secretaries from the white house and i'm gonna go and i'm gonna read the speech to them and then they come out of the speech and they're crying and they're in tears and they're thanking him and the president gives a speech the president will not read the speech even though it's been specifically designed to make women weep and the president's like, no, nah, it's corny. And Dustin Hoffman throws together a focus group, which I love, of just secretaries. And they all end up crying when he reads them the speech. And so the president changes his mind. Although, yeah, you, you kind of glossed over the, the Morse code part, which I have to point out. And one of the more genius parts of this movie that they they come up. Now that they, they finally find this guy, this Schumann, that they're going to make their war hero. It's Woody Harrelson. And they find a picture of him in a sweater, and they basically digitally rip holes in the sweater that look like Morse code. And so they say, this is Private Schumann, or this is uh, Willie Schumann behind the enemy lines, and he's torn Morse code in his, in his sweater. And this is what it reads. It reads, Courage, Mom. And so that's the line that really gets all the secretaries to cry, and they know this is the one we're going to go with. This, this speech and this image will make America weep. Absolutely. They write a folk, they write a country song about it, like you were saying before. And they also, 
start a little a viral marketing campaign where they decide just to start throwing shoes and trees and over traffic lines or over uh, power lines, thinking, you know, if we start throwing shoes up, America will follow our lead and they'll throw their shoes up in the air in support of old shoemen. And it's a wonderful little stretch of the movie where you see people doing this. And then there's like a uh, high school basketball game where the crowd spontaneously throws shoes on the court in, in support of shoemen. Yeah. And I, I love it. They do these a little. They don't do montages too much, but they do one of playing the song, the Courage Mom song. I think it's Waylon Jennings singing it, and they're walking around. There's guys with shirts that say uh, "F Albania" and just you know <laughs> give. That's basically the give them the boot thing that Fad King was looking for. But they just turned it into Schumann. That's why they need somebody with this name. And Woody will not be the ideal war hero, as we're about to find out. But there's a great line here. There's a couple, like about five really awesome quotes in this movie that just really predict the future or just explain politics. And this is the one that I circled, where Dustin Hoffman tells De Niro, it's like being a plumber. If you do your job right, no one should notice. But if you don't, everything turns to shit. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the second part. All right, so this is where the old 1930s song hits the news and everyone starts buying into the ballad of Old Shoe, Old Shoeman. And there's another great uh, moment here where we mentioned earlier that Jim Belushi and John Belushi were both Albanian. Famously, they, that's, that's true. They really are in real life. And they have Jim Belushi come on the news and he's actually, he's, he, I want to say something to my, my people in Albania who are holding old Schumann hostage. And he starts speaking in Albanian or whatever language they speak. So I love the callback that Jim Belushi even buys into this. I didn't even, I didn't even, until you said that, I, I never even looked to see whether they were Albanian or not because it didn't matter what was true. I saw it in the movie. I will tell you that I think one of my favorite parts is the, the flight with Schumann. I assume you're going to go there, but. Yeah, I'll get there in a second. We'll do the tie-in first. This Because if you're a cynical bastard, again, here's the part that I really love about these tie-ins, that not only are they planning the Schumann you know, appearance and rescue, but they're already planning all the, the tie-ins, all the, the merchandising, is that they're planning the Albanian War Memorial featuring Schumann returning home, and they're featuring the armbands and the song. And Dennis Leary even one point comes up with, you know, when Schumann was behind enemy lines, he survived on one product. It was this little burger in a bag, and you pull a string, it heats up, he eats it. That's how he survived. Call Burger King, get a tie-in. We're going to have the shoe burger with 303 sauce. Schumer with cheese and 303 sauce. That's awesome. I wrote that down, too. I love that. <laughs> All right, so let's go to the plane now. So now it's the end part of the movie that everyone in America's rallying around this fallen war hero, Schumann, and they've all forgotten about the sex scandal. We're like five days, six days from the election, and now it's time to produce Schumann himself, and this will not go over very smoothly. Yeah, they, they bring him, they, they're going to fly to Nashville to record the the next song, and... They bring Schumann in, or they no, they're bringing him back to Washington, and it's like pouring rain, and the military truck pulls up to the the Learjet that's going to take them, and they bring him in, and the sergeant that has him says, "Here's the keys to the manacles," and Anne Hage says, "What do you mean manacles?" They're like, "Yes, ma'am, he's a prisoner. He's a prisoner. <laughs> he's been in like a psychiatric prison for raping a nun." Yes. Our our heroic American hero Schumann is in jail for raping a nun, and they're like, "Oh, this is not going to go over well." 
And apparently he's on like medication. He's on like psychotic medication. And as long as he takes that, he's good. If he doesn't take that, he's a monster. Yeah. I love, again, back to Hoffman's constantly saying, this is nothing. He says, have you ever, did you ever shoot in Italy? Try three starlets whacked out on Benzedrine and Grappa. This is nothing. And you're right. It's just if you and I, I like to think that I'm a, someone that kind of gets the deep references in films. And that's some some great stuff there. And speaking of a reference to a film here, there's one that I am near and dear to my heart. This one where they decide, you know, we got to produce Schumann. We got to show him in front of the public. And the producer, the KG producer, is like, no, you don't produce him right away. You like, you got to reveal him in stages. And he starts comparing it to Jaws. Yeah. He's like, you don't have the shark in the first reel. You produce the shark at the end. So he's like, we gotta, we gotta produce him in stages. Like, basically, this is the contract with America. Like, Schumann's home. He's in the White House. If you vote for me on Tuesday, I will produce him on Wednesday. So he like spl- explains the whole theory behind delayed gratification for the war hero. Schumann is the shark. So, yeah, they get on the plane. They're trying to fly Schumann back to the White House, to D.C., to produce him to America. And, again, he's just a monster and a fantastic Woody Harrelson role. I love whenever Woody gets to play a psycho because he's so convincing. And he's, like, ogling Anne Hayes, and he's, like, trying to get with her. Because, again, he's a convicted scary rapist, and she wants nothing to do with him. And what's the quote here? It's like, uh, well, he's fine as long as he has his medication. And they're like, well, what if he doesn't? And Dustin's like, well, then he's not fine. <laughs> and Anne Hayes is holding up the empty pill bottle. Uh, uh, De Niro calls, calling, he's calling the Pentagon. He's like, yeah, we're going to need like a case of these antipsychotic drugs when we arrive. Well, I love, I, I forget if it's Dennis Leary or Dustin Hoffman or, or who suggests this, but someone says when, uh, when, when uh, Schumann gets back to America, rub some meat on the cuffs of his pants or his arms. So like a do- and then have a dog and a dog will come up to him and everyone will love the dog coming up to the war hero, but it's really just the dog coming after the meat scent. Yeah, yeah, and there's a callback to that at the end too. So, uh, so they're flying, they're flying through this rainstorm back to DC with this horrible, horrible war criminal, and uh, Woody's of course joking. He's like, uh, you know, I want, I, w- I want to get back to the prison because tonight's beans night. I love my beans, and then he's like, I'd also kind of like to go to a church if you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> I just watched that this morning. Uh, that part I loved. <laughs> And so basically what happens is at a certain point he runs out of psychotic medication and Schumann, Woody Harrelson, goes nuts on the plane and he ends up crashing the plane. And we don't see this. It all happens off camera. All of a sudden the plane never lands in D.C. And there's all these people on the news waiting, like the heroic arrival of Schumann into American soil and it never shows up because they've crashed into somewhere, some in some hillbilly land. They've crashed and now they're screwed. And this is where Anne Hayes just goes off on Dustin Hoffman and she goes on a big rant and he's like, this is nothing. This is nothing. That's right. He's, he's got a bug. He's got so many of those. I, I, I wrote them all down because I love them so much. He says, uh, this is inside Hollywood. He says, this is nothing. Try going to a, a pitch meeting, coke to the gills when you haven't read the script treatment or whatever. <laughs> yeah, that's, she just really, she really loses it here because she's like, well, how are you going to fix this? Hollywood whiz kid, how are you going to fix this one? 
Yeah, she just goes crazy, and again, Dustin is spinning his wheels. This is where he gives a samurai quote, and he's like, it's all on television. Like, remember, it just has to look good on television, and this is where Anne Hache, of course, gives the quote that I said at the beginning. She's like, I hate television. It has just destroyed the electoral process, <laughs> which is a very quaint uh, quote to say six years before social media does even even worse. Yeah. So, yeah, so at this point, Schumann is not being produced, and you have Craig T. Nelson, the president's opponent, saying, produce Schumann. If you do not produce him, then we, we will know he was made up. You must produce him, or, or this is on you. And so there's all this pressure now to produce him. And uh, things are going to go from bad to worse here when uh, <laughs> Schumann is going to fall back in his old habits when they run across a farmer and his daughter. Yeah, it's great. He's, he's Caesar, and he looks... You know, she's just a simple farm girl, and he looks out, and he stands. Somehow, they they stop paying attention to him, and he's roaming off. It, again, it shows how vapid they are about what they're doing. This guy's a rapist, and you're letting him roam around the countryside, and he's just standing there looking, and he's like, "I like to party, I like to disco," and he starts chasing this girl, and her father says, "Honey," and he grabs a shotgun and goes after him. So famed American war hero Willie Schumann tries to rape a farmer's daughter. He is blown to bits by the farmer, kills war hero Schumann. And there's a great there's a great moment here where Dustin Hoffman hears the first gunshot. He's like, no, he's okay. He's still alive. And then, bam, the second gunshot. All right, he's dead. Strike that. <laughs> this is nothing. We can work around this. We got a dead war hero now. All right, so the unflappable producer, of course, now has a dead war hero, and he's like, well, there's only one thing that American galvanizes, America galvanizes behind more than a live war hero. It's a dead war hero. Let's turn this into the biggest military funeral ever. Yeah. And this is actually really kind of the end of the movie. I kind of forgot how short this movie. It's only about 12 scenes, the entire movie. And so, yeah, this is really the end of the movie that we have this big funeral back in America for famed war hero Willie Schumann. And like America tunes in and there's a new song. It's like the, the fighting men of the 303 or something like that. I tell you, I, I wrote down, I had this, I had subtitles on and I wrote the lyrics to the 303 song because it's so crazy. And remember, the, and Dennis Leary had come up with the idea of 303 to be, I think it was uh, Liz Butsky who said it should, they should be leopard skin. That was their, they wore leopard, it makes no sense. It's not camouflage, but it's fashionable. So they could get the back end and they wear leopard skin like bandanas and hats and in the men of the 303, so the song is 303, I can't sing, so I won't try. 303, give us this day our daily bread and leopard skin for our head. That's the song. <laughs> if you listen to the lyrics, it's ridiculous, but it's this like solemn horn and the military drum beat and leopard skin for our head. <laughs> that's fantastic. I didn't catch that. And then that's when they have... De Niro and Hoffman standing there and they're carrying the they're carrying the casket and 
what comes up running behind the casket but a dog. And the dog is sniffing behind the casket and looks back at, at De Niro, and he kind of gives him a hand signal like, stay there, move forward, and the dog runs up. And just as the scene is ending, the dog, like, licks something off the casket. And, you know, it's probably they rub the meat there. That's right. Uh, the couple great callbacks in the movie, and that's one that he, they have even stacked the military funeral for Schumann by putting meat scent on the casket so the dog will follow it. And the the thing that I, watching this, this the last time that I watched it, I was thinking to myself, was any of that real? They're not, I don't think any of the people in that scene were real. They were all actors because they're shooting it like in an airport hangar to make it look like it's outside. And I, I don't want to, but at the, Dustin Hoffman says, look at that. It's 100% fabrication and it looks 100% real. I mean, Peter, it is real. I saw it on TV. There you go. <laughs> I take your point. All right, and that's really the basic gist of the movie, that they have saved the president. And again, all this effort, all this work just to save a guy who basically molested a Girl Scout. Like, it's like, who are the good guys? Who are the bad guys in this movie? Like, it doesn't even matter. Like, well, we did our job. That's what politics is. It's all perception. And this is where we kind of get the dark ending that I really forgot was in this movie is that all throughout the movie, we've had two things. We've had Dustin Hoffman saying, this is going to be a great story. I want to tell this someday. It's going to be awesome. And De Niro, you know, the man of mystery, keeps saying, no, you'll never tell this to anybody. You cannot, do not speak a word to this ever, or someone will kill you. And Dustin really doesn't take that seriously. And then we also have the running joke of the president's re-election ad, the uh, don't change horses midstream. It's a bad plan, which is like the hackiest commercial ever. And so... What happens here? We get to the end, Peter. Kind of explain what ha- the dark ending here. Well, they're they're watching they're they're watching that the funeral happening, and they're in a room above there. And the TV's on, and there's like a panel show, and they're talking about the president re-election, and the president was re-elected, and it's all happening. And they say, and let's look, let's look at the the campaign that got him elected, and they show this horrible commercial, and they say. That's what that's what TV that's what elections are now commercials 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 and Dustin Hoffman loses it. They have they say we're going to take some calls and he writes down the number and he starts to pick up the phone and De Niro's saying what are you doing Stanley he's like I want the credit I don't want some film school kids coming in taking credit for my work I want the credit he's like you were told you knew you could never take the credit you can have an ambassadorship. Another great one of his great lines, he says, they told me that I couldn't remake Moby Dick from the point of view of the whale. And it made millions of dollars. I want the credit. Yeah, at a, at a certain point, De Niro starts telling him, we'll give you an ambassadorship. We'll give you money, whatever you want. You just cannot tell people what you did. And uh, Dustin Hoffman, in the manner of a Hollywood producer, says, I didn't do this for money. I did this for a higher power. I did this for art. Yeah. <laughs> so... Dustin Hoffman storms off and you know he's going to go call the press and try to take credit for getting the president reelected. And this is where De Niro has to make a call. And like I said, it's kind of a dark ending you forget is in here where De Niro just nods to the Secret Service agent and that's it. You know, Dustin Hoffman's about to get killed. Yeah. And I love they they cut. He's walking towards his limo and the four CAA guys come up and just guide him in there and drive him off. And, And then we get to the scene that, you know, that. The news, they're talking about the president was elected, and this is all great, and the inaugural, and this is, 
And then in, in Hollywood news, famed producer Stanley Moss has died and the funeral is at his home. And one of my favorite lines, he says, Mr. Moss was 57 or 62 years old. <laughs> yeah. Depending on which biography you read. Yes. <laughs> so the producer, Stanley Moss, has suffered a massive heart attack, a.k.a. he was off by the Secret Service. And we find out the president was reelected and De Niro wanders back into the shadows. And someone again asks him, what do you do for a living, by the way? And he's like, nah, don't worry about it. So you never find out exactly what he does. And then the last line of the movie is the president has been reelected. He's going back, uh, taking going back into the White House. But he was not ruling out any future action against Albania. The bombers may be sent there in the future. And it's like dot, dot, dot. And that's the end of the movie. We uh, <laughs> right back to where we were at the start. No hugging, no learning. Nothing has changed. And, you know, it's funny that one of the things that I was saying when every time Moss was doing his his talking about the things that happened and he talks about Moby Dick. It reminded me of another great film, The Player by Robert Altman. And oh, yeah. throughout that film, people are pitching movies and like The Graduate Part Two and just ridiculous things. And that that just such a that was that was before this film and is another Hollywood uh, great Hollywood great Hollywood dark satire. There's another movie this one reminds me of, and this one's really obscure. It's an Alexander Payne movie called Citizen Ruth. Have you seen that one? It's real. Yes. <laughs> it's very funny that you said that, because I was thinking when I said at the beginning that this film doesn't take sides, I thought to myself, just like Citizen Ruth. I, I love that film, and it's such a hot-button topic, yet it doesn't take sides. I don't know how. How can you make a movie and not about that and not makes take sides it's 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 great i love him he makes great films yeah okay um i'll just explain that so wag the dog the movie we just talked about makes fun of politics and re-election and perception and the media and just how news is presented and consumed and how the media is able to drive your thought process and control your outrage and again they don't really take sides it's not really there's not really good guys or bad guys it's just the way it is Citizen Ruth is very similar, but it's a much dicier issue. It's about the abortion debate, about pro-choice versus pro-life. And it's one I'm planning to do on staff picks in the near future. It's very, very edgy. And again, it's it's one of those movies you gotta have you have to see to believe. You will not believe they had the audacity to make an abortion comedy where they just mock both sides mercilessly. But it's one of my favorite cynical bastard movies. So yeah, we'll get to that one in the future. But again, for someone who's not especially political, a movie like Wag the Dog is like catnip for me because it just makes fun of everything that I hate about politics and I hate about the news cycle and I hate about social media. And I just sit there and mock stuff. But a lot of it's because I saw Wag the Dog when I was 23 and it really opened my eyes to how easy it is to just dupe people and control people through their emotions and how... You know, I wouldn't say the media necessarily goes out and tries to do it, but it's so easy to do if the right person can spin the media. So it's really interesting. And again, that's only more relevant today in 2019 when it happens even more. Yeah, I agree. And I think there's a lesson. There is a lesson that comes out of this film. And I think it does apply to modern day social media is to not believe everything that you're told. Don't like to, to see people like I deleted my Facebook account a few months ago and I'm so much better off for it, but I'm all over Twitter. I love Twitter, but I understand 
and I read it with the suspicious mind a little bit to when some when I read a tweet, I don't immediately think, oh, that's awful. I'm going to go tell my friends about that. I think, well, wait a minute. Is that true? And I go look it up and try to understand what is it this person is talking about. And most people don't take the time to do that because that takes time and effort. But I think what this film shows you is just because you read something, see something on TV or hear a politician say something or read something on social media, don't assume it's true. Listen to other opinions. Try and find out what the answer is. Sometimes you may not be able to find that out, but unfortunately it comes down to laziness and people just, they hear a story, they don't want to do the work to find out whether it's true or not, so they just believe it. But the problem is then they start retweeting it and reposting it, and now these stories, they get a life of their own. I'd almost go as far as go even further than that, and I'd almost say like any big news story that inflames you and comes out within about six months of an election, I would be very skeptical of. Like it might indeed be true, but it's almost healthier to assume it's BS until someone proves it's true because it's so easy to drive people through emotions, especially nowadays. And I will say this movie, Wag the Dog, was one thing that really kind of opened my eyes to that. The Michael Moore documentary, Bowling for Columbine, is the one that really kind of led me into this culture of fear and how easy it is to just drive people through fear. And what if they fear something, it's easy to inflame them against it. And so those are the two that have really opened my eyes and made me the loving, cynical bastard that I am. But yeah, that's the one thing I would say is that always be skeptical, especially when it comes to around election time, because there's a lot of people, again, that own red ribbon factories and would love to sell you a red ribbon. Well, that's true. And I, I was a I was a political science minor in college 100 years ago. And one of the things that in politics they talk about a lot is the October surprise, that the thing that comes out right before, like a month before the election that drives votes against one opponent or another. But times are so shortened now that an October surprise could happen on November 5th and still impact what happens on November 6th. Stories don't need so long to gestate anymore. They just they come out and people react and then they're kind of slipped aside until unless someone keeps them going, which happens a lot, too. So, again, I think good lessons from this film about just don't believe everything you read. Okay, I'll even extrapolate a little further here is that a lot of people you hear live in anxiety and fear and they're just stressed out and nervous all the time because the news makes them, you know, angry. They makes it just makes you emotional. One thing that I have learned personally, I've been through anxiety counseling. I've been I had to learn several years ago, about a decade ago to control my emotions and not let exterior factors control my happiness and emotions. And it's just one piece of advice I would offer to people who maybe feel stressed out and anxious all the time is that don't give away the power to make you happy or make you angry about things. Like, I think a lot of people are very open with letting the news and letting the media drive their happiness at the time. And I think that's very dangerous. And I think, so I would, that's one as someone who's been through anxiety counseling and has once was a very nervous person and just everything stressed me out and I've kind of learned over the years, it's that 
don't freely give away the power of your happiness and your emotions to people. And that goes to the news as well. If you find yourself being stressed out about the news, just critically think about this stuff and try to maybe start wag the dogging what you think about it. And it's you, you will gain a little more power and a little more control over what you think about the news. That'd be my advice to people. Well, that's excellent advice. I'll, I'll try to take that and be a little less myself. Wow, I can actually influence someone who's older than me. Usually, I'm talking to like 20 year olds. No, I've learned I've learned over the years to just take things with a grain of salt and just not not get so wound up. It's tough because I'm a Type A person, but I get wound up by a lot of things. But I also have I try to have a sense of humor about everything. I always say I'm un, I'm unoffendable unless you attack my wife. So uh, <laughs> I, I'm I'm just gonna laugh at it. I want to make want to make things funny. Yeah, you know what I was just thinking, Peter? That I was thinking your wife is the greatest person ever. She is. She puts up with me. So anyway, I just want to thank you for bringing Wag the Dog back to my attention. Because, again, this is not a movie I had seen for like 20 years. I kind of forgot about it. And it was really interesting getting back into it and reading its point and its purpose in history and how many things it has affected over the years. And it's really one of those that I think a lot of younger people, especially just getting into politics, just getting into the news cycle, just learning about the culture of fear and how the media works. Go watch this movie, and I think it will open your eyes quite a bit. And then just to be amazed by the fact that it's 22 years old, and it kind of predicted where we are today. Absolutely right, and I appreciate you having me on. All right, now, before we sign off, I know there's one other movie you keep hyping to me, and I don't know anything about it. I'm going to throw out the word Fandango, and why don't you sell me on this in about three sentences? Oh, Fandango is a fantastic coming-of-age film from the 80s. It was based on a student film that Steven Spielberg saw and picked up and gave the guy the money to make. It has Kevin Costner and Judd Nelson in very young roles. Judd Nelson, the same year that Breakfast Club came out, Fandango came out, has an amazing soundtrack, is an amazing, I don't want to keep using that word, but it's a, such a great film and so heartfelt and funny. And I recommend everybody going and seeing it, but the problem is, I don't know if you can find it anywhere. I, I think you have to buy it on YouTube to be able to see it. Huh. But I'll, I'll, just, I'll be mailing out copies of my DVD to people that want to <laughs> see it. And then I'll never see it again, just like my Wag the Dog DVD. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, that's, it's very rare for somebody to slip an 80s movie past me that I've never even heard of. So, and, and Peter's been mentioning this one to me for months, so I need to look into it. And, and anybody who's that passionate about a movie, I will always look into it, because I'm curious, how did it inspire that, that much emotion in one person? So I will look into that. If I can find it and I enjoy it, we'll do a, uh, an episode on it in the future. And again, I just want to thank you for stopping by today. Thanks a lot, Mario. All right, and again, my name is Mario Lanza. This is Staff Picks. If you need to reach me, you can reach me at staffpickspodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at Mario J. Lanza. And until the next time, I will be out there looking for more movies that deserve more love, and I'll try to find somebody interesting to come on and talk about them. Remember, don't believe anything you see if it's on TV because it's probably wagged the dog. Talk to you guys later. Bye. Oh my, oh, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, he's not dead, he's not, strike that.